everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. How's it going? And we're here with what should be an episode of Fallen Through Potholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. But actually, it's going to be something slightly different. Welcome to the first episode of what's going to be called Falling Through Potholes Extra. So... Before I get started, I kind of want to explain what the heck this even is. With the exception of this first episode, if you hear any of these episodes after after next week, it's because something's gone wrong. Either Alex or I have gone on vacation, are sick, or, you know, the world's on fire, or my computer exploded, or something has happened where we can't record a normal episode. So... Instead, we're going to have kind of a few episodes on Backlog that we can kind of just throw out there. And I figured if we're going to do that, we might as well cover something that, honestly, I don't know about you, Alex, I, I find very interesting. And that's just general video game history. Yeah, I also find it extremely interesting. I love listening to this stuff and talking about this stuff. Oh, yes. It's, it's so fascinating. And we were discussing a little bit before we started recording today. Video game history is usually poorly documented. Extremely, depending on the time period. Yeah, and a lot of it involves like secondhand sources or articles online that aren't sourced at all and all sorts of other nonsense. Like essentially a lot of video game history might as well be oral tradition passed down, it almost Mm -hmm. feels like. Yeah. A game of telephone that continues on until it's all just utter nonsense and static. So these episodes are going to hopefully... Uh, once again, a series of five episodes are going to hopefully you know, share, shed some light on some of the more lesser known topics of video game history. Like we're not, I'm probably not going to cover anything that's too well known with the exception of today's episode. Today's episode is kind of like a get my feet wet sort of thing. So we're going to pick something that's a little bit more well known, but hopefully y'all will enjoy it as uh, much as I enjoyed putting it together. So yeah, uh, Alex, though, I want to start off as always with a question. Okay. Have you ever seen any version of King Kong? Not in its entirety. Um, I've seen clips of the Peter Jackson movie from about a decade ago. Hmm. Um, I've seen clips of the uh, the other ones, I suppose. But I've, I've never sat down and watched any of the King Kongs in their entirety. Yeah, I say the original. I seen the original mm-hmm. 1933 movie, but um, I actually never saw uh, the Peter Jackson one or the one that actually is going to be more most relevant to today's episode, which is the 1976 movie. Mm. Which uh, did you know they made one in 1976? I do. I did know that. Yeah. Oh, nice. Very good. Very good. Uh, I I've noticed a lot of people actually don't. They're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Even though it was actually a pretty big blockbuster at the time. Yeah, it, it had a lot of funding and a lot of hype around it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it did. I, I can't remember the the gentleman who directed it. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I actually don't remember offhand either. But yeah, he did other movies like The Towering Inferno and other... It, it was like a known jackass, too. Oh, yeah. That makes <laughs> <Yes>. sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very screamy, apparently. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's... King Kong is a very, very influential movie. Yes. And normally this is about the time where I go in and start talking about it, but I want to already talk about why it's relevant to today's topic. Because King Kong has had such a cultural influence, not only on people in the United States, but Japan as well, just all over the world, that many people have drawn inspiration or ideas from it. I mean, the idea, the word King Kong is synonymous with giant ape, essentially. And... With that, it's eventually going to inspire uh, a certain company to create (laughs) a uh, very, very popular arcade game. And then eventually, have said company get sued. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode is about a very important lawsuit, and that's Universal City Studios Incorporated versus Nintendo. Mm. Now, this is, I would say, one of the most well-known stories in video game history. Mm Mm-hmm. But I would see, also say that I think people know the broad strokes of it. I think they don't know just how weirdly wild the story gets and also how it even came about in the first place because Universal did not make the original King Kong, for instance. Mm. And how exactly they got into the position to even sue Nintendo in the first place and even how Nintendo even got into the position to release a you know 
a game that literally sold about 100 and like profited about 180 million dollars in 1980s money right <laughs> like you kind of have to go back to see how nintendo even got to that point in the first place so mm-hmm. We're not going to just talk about the trial today, but we're also going to talk about the origins and how they even got to that point in the first place. Okay. So I think what we're going to start off with is we're going to start by talking a little bit about King Kong. So King Kong, first released in 1933 by RKO Studios, is once again one of the most influential movies of all time. Uh, The movie, about an ape, an actress, and their attempts to survive the theater scene in New York was a special effects marvel at the time using stop-motion and practical effects in a way that captured the minds of the viewing audience. Uh, Most importantly, though, for our story, it captured the minds of those who would eventually go on to lead the next generation of, um, you know, people in the movie industry, you know, producers, directors, and whatnot. Uh, These people include Michael Eisner, future president and CEO of Disney, and then executive at Paramount in the 1970s. So the story goes that in 1974... Eisner saw the original King Kong playing on TV and decided it was ripe for a remake. So he got in contact with his boss, Barry Diller, at Paramount, who convinced longtime producer uh, Dino De Laurinaitis to work on the project. Now, Eisner also proposed the remake to, uh, to Sid Sheinberg, who also began working on the project. Now, Alex, I don't know how much you know about the movie industry, but uh, do you see there might be a slight problem with this? Um... It's not readily apparent if you don't really know about the principal actors in this, but uh, uh, Sid Steinberg doesn't work for Paramount. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be a slight issue. It's a slight issue, no. He's the CEO of Universal. <laughs> mm. Universal and Paramount are rival companies. But rival movie distributors can always put aside their differences for the good of making big blockbusters. Oh, they can if it at least involves them putting a knife to somebody in the first place, which is exactly what's going to happen here. Boy, we're going to have to talk about the Halo movie one day. We really have to. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, first off, any story that involves us starting out with Michael Eisner, if you know anything about him, usually involves some sort of chicanery. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. And right away, he's like, I work for Paramount, but I'm going to propose this movie to somebody who works at Universal's top-tier uh, Mike, Mike Eisner. Yep. So the problem becomes very cute when D. Laurinaitis purchases the rights to a movie adaption for King Kong from K- RKO. So he gets the rights and whatnot to remake this movie. Uh, Universal found this out and flipped out. <laughs> they immediately sued RKO, claiming they breached a ber- verbal agreement they had regarding a remake. And an RKO and D. Uh, D. Laurinaitis countersued, and everything became a giant mess. Now, Universal's claim was tenuous at best, but they did have an ace up their sleeve. The rights to King Kong weren't just a mess then, they've always been a mess. Mm. You see, it turns out there's been a long-standing rights battle between the creator of King Kong, Marion C. Cooper, and RKO, who owned the rights to the movie character. Hmm which itself was based upon a novelization that Cooper commissioned. Basically, Cooper came up with the idea of King Kong. He had his friend write a novel in 1932. as kind of like a proof of concept. Right. And then he wrote the script in 1933 and sold it to RKO. So Cooper, a fighter pilot in World War I and World War II, and also for some reason the Polish Air Forces, uh, huh. had said, yeah, he has a, actually a very interesting and complicated life. Right. He sadly lost the documentation asserting his rights to King Kong while he was busy serving in World War II, doing things like <laughs> literally planning to do Little Raid. Right. This led to a decades-long battle over the rights that sadly wouldn't be decided until after his death. Luckily for his descendants, however, Universal argued this position that RKO didn't have the rights and they were successful. On December 6, 1976, Judge Manuel Real ruled that while RKO owned the rights to the original 1933 movie and uh, the sequel that came out the same year, Son of Kong, mm-hmm. they didn't own the rights to the movie character of King Kong. Furthermore, he ruled that King Kong outside of these movies, so the 1933 movie, was in the public domain. Because remember that novel that uh, Cooper had commissioned? Right. They never bothered to update the copyright. Mm. So because that... Any examples outside of that movie are just public domain now. Right. Okay. This allows Marion Cooper's son, Richard, to just turn around and sell the rights to Universal. 
Since Paramount's King Kong was essentially finished by this point, they had no choice but to negotiate with Universal, who agreed to allow its release provided to get a percentage of all proceeds. So with that, King Kong came out in 1976 and was an otherwise unremarkable success. Mm. Though, uh, just a quick tangent, the movie sounds like it sucked to work on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the director was a mess known for screaming at everyone, including the producer's own son. Mm. Uh, they passed on hiring Meryl Streep because she was deemed too ugly. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Right? Yeah, literal, like, Hollywood royalty, greatest actress of all time, Meryl Streep. They're like, ah, nah, she's too ugly. Okay. Mm. The actress they did hire, Jessica Lange, which was her first role, and she would go and actually have a very accomplished career, mm. uh, spent hours filming a scene in the middle of winter on a life raft, just soaked in her Oof. dress, like, just freezing her ass off. Oof. My personal favorite, though, is when they spent half a million in 1980s money, which is about two and a half million today, mm. on a 40-foot-tall animatronic King Kong that was so unconvincing that it only briefly shows up for a grand total of 15 minutes off in a distance. <laughs> this movie sounds like a nightmare. Yep. Anyways, that should be the end of it, but it's not. Because you so, see... In okay, so, okay. sorry, I want to clarify. At this point, Universal owns the rights to what exactly? You see, that's a good question. It seems that they own the rights to the movie version of King Kong. Right, okay. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be the heart of this entire thing, is what exactly are the rights to King Kong? Right. But yeah, it, the idea is that the um, the movie character reverted to the uh, the Cooper estate, and then Richard Cooper sold it to Universal. Uh, it's uh, part of a uh, judgment called the Cooper Judgment, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, but the... A part of that character also entered into public domain. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, it's going to get very messy very quickly because this of is, that. This is very reminiscent of Sherlock Holmes right now. Isn't it, though? Yeah, like the rights associated with that and how mm -hmm. that's all incredibly weird. Yep. Oh, yes, and it's, it's only going to get weirder from here. Excellent. Yeah, and it's going to get weirder because you see in 1982... Universal Studios decided they wanted to get into video games. Like, they saw that Warner had bought Atari, and they were like, hey, we want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they heard about a game involving a giant ape by a weird Japanese company named Nintendo. Now, this is where we're going to talk a little bit about Nintendo's early history. And, Alex, are you, are you familiar with the early history at all? Vaguely. I know that they began as, I believe, a toy company. Sort um, of, yeah. With, yeah. like an electronics department later on? Yeah, that's that's vaguely correct. It's even weirder than that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So early Nintendo is such a weird company because it shouldn't exist. Because a lot of their history is them flying by the seat of their pants. Mm. So first, this company was founded in 1889 by uh, Fushijiro Yamauchi. So it's a very old company by video game standards. Mm-hmm. The second is that first, oh, say 10 to 15 years, it was dedicated to making Hanafuda cards, a type of Japanese mm. playing card. Right, okay. This was so successful, they started making other playing cards shortly after. And then they did that for 50 years. They're incredibly exciting. <laughs> the second thing this company was known for is the Yamauchi's inability to have a male heir. You see, mm. Nintendo was the type of company that passed down its like, entire company to the oldest son. <laughs> okay. And unfortunately, Fushijiro only had a daughter. So he adopted his son, a not unknown tactic in Japanese society, and had him take his last name. Mm. So this son proceeded to also only have a daughter and did the exact same thing. He adopted, you know, his son-in-law. Uh, except this adopted son just sort of up and like went out for a pack of smokes and never came back one day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well then. The good news, though, is this was not before he had a son who immediately became the heir apparent. And when he turned 22 in the middle of law school, uh, his, uh, his father ended up having a stroke. And so mm. he was immediately summoned back to Nintendo to assume the head of the company at age 22. His name is Hiroshi Yamauchi. He ah. is incredibly important. Yes. Like, literally, he's going to end up being the richest person in Japan important. <laughs> so... Hiroshi Yamauchi could have an entire podcast devoted to himself, and perhaps one day we will do that. It's not a part of my initial five episodes, but if we go further than that, he's going to go to the top of the list. <laughs> so 
We do have to talk about the court case at the center of this, so I'm not going to focus too much on his life, but I do want to focus on a few things. Mm -hmm. First, he was kind of a dictator. When he was told he was going to be the next president of Nintendo in 1949, he said he would only do it if he was the only person from his family that worked there. Which on one hand, you know, points on him, no nepotism and all that. No. Uh, that being said, he had to fire his older cousin to make that happen. <laughs> mm. And um, he would later uh, appoint his son-in-law as president of Nintendo of America. So it's not going to last forever. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Also, um, when a labor dispute happened shortly after he became president, he just sort of like fired them all and replaced them. Yeah, that also makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, getting the getting the picture there. Yeah, yeah, you're getting a picture of what kind of man he is. So it, the story goes, though, in the mid-50s, he wanted, like, Nintendo became, like, the top playing card manufacturer in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so he went to the United States to visit the U.S. playing card company, which was the uh, the top playing card company in the world, and, like, kind of negotiate some business deals and a partnership. Mm -hmm. And so he flew out to, I believe, Cincinnati, and he went to this very small cramped office, and he walked in, and he immediately decided, oh, no, there's no money in playing cards. And he needed to do something else, which is, like, not for me to tell somebody about, like, you know, the prospects of a certain business. But it's like, yeah, no, that's, that, that kind of tracks. Right. So they immediately started doing something different. Now, what exactly Yamauchi wanted Nintendo to do, though, was unclear. So he decided to try kind of everything. Mm. And this... And it's, oh, it's going to get so good. Like, they start out with a successful taxi service, right? Oh. Until, um, yeah, they had a taxi service. But the problem is there was a labor dispute, and he fired them all. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, be and after that, the taxi service uh, stopped existing. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, they created an instant rice company that apparently tasted awful. Mm. And they opened a very successful love hotel, which Yamauchi went to uh, frequently. Okay. Yep. I feel like that was less of a business initiative and more of a, hey, I need this. Can we capitalize on this? Yeah. I mean, Yamauchi was famous for literally playing and approving, uh, approving for release every, um, every Nintendo game that came out up until like 1994. So maybe mm. he was just applying that to Love Hotel. Right. Yeah, sure. I had to test out every room. Just got to make sure this gotta make works. Sure. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, he was doing all these things, but, like, this, in the meantime, was costing Nintendo a lot of money. Like, they were barely staying afloat. Mm -hmm. However, a very lucky thing is going to happen here. So, 1966, Yamamuchi decides to go on a tour of one of his uh, Hanafuda factories. And there he saw that one of the line engineers that got hired, like, a year before had made a weird toy. And it, this toy was, like, a hand that could manually extend to grab distant objects. Now, he was immediately taken by this toy and thought every kid would love this new toy that he now called the Ultra Hand. And he was totally right. It sold over a million units. And he found out who this engineer was who made it, and he immediately was like, you need to research a new toy. We're going to become a toy company, and you need to work <laughs> on this. I'm going to give you your own division where you're going to be the only employee, and you're going to make this happen. So this man's name is Gunpei Yokoi. Mm. Yokoi is also very, very important in video, in video game history because he's a guy who's going to eventually design the Game & Watch series of handhelds, right. Rob the Robot, and the Game Boy. Like, man is very, very important. He's like a tinkerer by trade, and mm -hmm. so he just... This happens to be just the perfect thing for him to do. So this absolute by luck sort of thing just happens. Right. And now Nintendo has their direction going forward. Was he... Sort of. Also involved in the Metroid series somehow? Yes, uh, because Yokoi was the producer on the original Metroid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, R and D one is the is the uh, division he's going to end up being in charge of. Uh, that's initially going to consist of him and a financial guy, and that's it. <laughs> right. But yeah, they're going to be responsible for uh, everything from Donkey Kong, which we're talking about today, to yeah, like Metroid. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. In the meantime, while Yokoi was working his way towards all these future projects, he he put his degree in electronics to good use developing all sorts of amusement games, mm -hmm. including, like, one of the first light guns, which really wish we had time to talk about the story of the first light gun. Oh, boy. <laughs> because it involves some real, real <laughs> nonsense that Nintendo had to do to make it work. So, now the reason why I bring all this up is because Yamamuchi began to realize that home electronic entertainment devices were going to be a big deal. 
as well as the burgeoning arcade scenes of both Japan and the United States. Mm -hmm. So to this end, he expanded Nintendo into North America by opening Nintendo of America in Redmond, Washington, and set about pivoting Nintendo's focus to amusement halls and arcade games, and eventually just video games in general. Like, they open up a lot of, like, amusement parlors in Japan. That's, like, initially they're making a lot of money from that. That's, mm-hmm. that's where they get their initial funding to even do this in the first place. Right. So once again, to accomplish this, he puts his son-in-law, Minero Arakawa, in charge of Nintendo of America, and with Yokoi in charge of R&D 1, they would produce some of Nintendo's first arcade games, such as Sheriff and Monkey Magic. <laughs> <laughs> You've never heard of these games because they're terrible. Yeah. You might have heard of the, this next game, though, which was going to be Nintendo's biggest arcade game ever, Radar Scope. Ah, yes. Alex, have you ever played Radar Scope? I don't think that I have. Well, you'll be happy to... Yeah, you, you'll be happy to know no one else in the United States did either. It was a huge failure. Yeah. Uh, to give you an idea of, like, what the game was like, it if you know the game Galaga, it's, like, a very impressive looking of Galaga. Like, it has some interesting scaling back and forth in the backgrounds and whatnot. Like, it actually looks like a legitimately cool game that also looks like it's just Galaga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it once again, it ended up being a huge failure. Like, uh, you know, kind of the we sunk every cent into this huge failure. Right. Yeah. And while it's unknown if it would sunk the company, it probably would have severely damaged their long-term prospects in North America. So they needed to make a new game that could sell well and make up for these losses. But they had a, a bit of conundrum with this, Alex. Mm-hmm. You see, they need to sell a new game in order to make up for the losses of their old game, but they don't have the money to make a new game, so they can't make up for the losses of their old game. Right. Kind of a problem. A little, all... little bit of a problem. Yeah, so they have all this inventory of radar scope machines, something like 2,000 of them or so, and they have like no idea what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So what they do instead is they're going to retrofit all of those radar scope cabinet, cabinets with a new game, something that works within the limits of like the ROM sets that they have already on there and using as few new components as possible. Mm-hmm. So Yamauchi tasked Yokoi to figure this out, and so Yokoi turns it to a newcomer that was basically only hired because his father was a family friend to Yamauchi. Ah. Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm-hmm. I don't think I need to explain who Miyamoto is, but in short, he is the Walt Disney of video games with the, without the anti-Semitism. <laughs> I think. Probably. <laughs> he seems like an incredibly nice and charming man from every interview he's ever given. Yes, we, we are going to continue assuming that until proven otherwise. Exactly. He is maybe the most important person in video game history. And if not, he's certainly the most beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, responsible for Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, uh, basically any Nintendo video game that's ever come out, he's probably had his hand in at least some way, not mm-hmm. directly creating, but influencing some aspect of it. And I don't think I need to go on. Before he could do that, though, before he could become this great person, he basically had to save Nintendo. And the way he talks about it, he's like, well, I was only picked because I was literally the only person who wasn't doing anything at the time, which it's hard to know how true that is. But also, 70s and 80s video game uh, companies kind of operated that way. Right. So it's also totally believable. So the way he decides to go about is, is he's going to make a game based upon Popeye the Sailor. (laughs) Now, Alex, the problem is they don't have the rights to the game. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. But, you know... (laughs) That's tomorrow's problem. That's tomorrow's problem. And if they will, fun fact, eventually get the rights and make a Popeye arcade game. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of okay. Oh, that's surprising. Yeah. So, can't make a Popeye game, so instead they make it about a gorilla, a carpenter, a beautiful woman, and a building scenario. This game, centered around his King Kong-like antagonist, was called Donkey Kong. Alex, I'm pretty sure you've played Donkey Kong, right? I have played Donkey Kong, yes. What's your opinion of Donkey Kong? Uh, it's, how do I put this? It will never be one of my favorite games, but it is an incredible game for how simple it is. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Like, it's just, it, it, brilliant in its simplicity is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Given it was released in, what, 1981 and, mm-hmm. like, alongside, like, you know, Galaga, Pac-Man and whatnot like single screen games and this game was like no we actually have like stages and all that and like right. a weird progression associated with it yeah yeah it's 
Donkey Kong is considered one of the preeminent classics of the 80s. Uh, yeah. I think it's the second best-selling arcade game in the United States behind Pac-Man or something like that. It was very, very mm-hmm. high up there. Sounds right. And it's, yeah, once again, it's a deceptively simple game that takes place over four screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you play as Jumpman as he ascends a skyscraper to save Pauline from Donkey Kong, who does everything he can to stop him. Now, everything while, he can. Everything he can. Mostly it's just throwing barrels. It's and mostly just throwing at barrels. That's, that's most of what he can do. Do- Donkey Kong, he's not a very inventive, inventive ape. He doesn't know what else to do. No. <laughs> it's that and carry lady. Pretty much. So there was a lot of skepticism that it could ever be successful. Like a lot of people had looked at this because like Nintendo had put out quite a few arcade games at this point. Everyone was like, y'all don't know what you're doing. Right. But they managed to conv- – Nintendo of America convinced a couple of Seattle area bar managers to let them set up machines in their bars mm. just like for free. Right. And these machines were very successful, earning about $30 a day each like each day of the week. So that might not seem like a lot, but that's that was still quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they were like, okay, let's push forward with selling the game. This game was a smash hit. Mm-hmm. It ended up netting the company over $180 million in sales. This is $180 in, U, in like 1980s money. Right. This is an eye-popping number for mm-hmm. a video game company. Yeah. And just for Nintendo in general. And so because of that, everyone wanted a piece of Donkey Kong. It commanded a very high licensing fee for home versions. Because remember, this is before Nintendo actually enters the home console market. Right. So like Coleco... Uh, who was about to release their own ColecoVision, secured the rights for about $5 million. And the, there's eventually going to be like an Atari 2600 version of this game, for instance. And I think I'll bet it's like, very good. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> all the ports of Donkey Kong are terrible, almost yeah. universally. Yeah, I imagine they are. Um, there's freaking, a really... Yeah. Freaking four-bit consoles trying to emulate arcade hardware. Oh, God. There's a really good um, YouTube uh, uh, YouTube channel that like, goes through different ports of games and whatnot, and the mm-hmm. Donkey Kong one is great, because it's just, like, 50 straight ports of, like, just the worst Donkey Kongs you've ever <laughs> seen. Love it. So, yeah, Coleco, like, ser- secured the rights for this game for, like, $5 million, and, like, there's even stuff like breakfast cereals and, like, board games and the like based on mm. the game. And its cultural relevance continues to this day. Like, people know who Donkey Kong is. Mm-hmm. And it was certainly huge back in the day, and once again, everyone wanted their hands on Donkey Kong. And here's where we circle back to Universal Studios and right. the actual meat to our story. So it's 1981, and Tiger Electronics. Oh, you know, yes. That Tiger Electronics. Yeah, that Tiger Electronics. Once again, any story is good when Tiger Electronics gets involved. Oh, they're my favorite. Oh, they're so good. They decide that Donkey Kong is a real cool game, and they want to make a similar game. Basically a clone of it, except based on King Kong. So... They get in contact with Universal, who grants them a license. Like, yeah, sure, whatever. Who cares? Okay. Uh, The following year, Universal's legal department does a routine trademark report, which, you know, companies do this all the time. Mm. And that's when you discover Donkey Kong. Uh, This, combined with the absolutely overwhelming success of that game, causes Universal's legal department to investigate. Right. But they determine that there's actually nothing infringing. They're like, okay, no, this is just its own separate thing. Yeah, it kind of looks like King Kong, but whatever. But when has professional legal counsel ever interfered with capitalist opportunities? Well, Alex, it's funny that you mentioned that because this got reported to Sid Seinberg. Uh, Remember him? Yep, I sure do. <laughs> Still CEO of Universal and uh, a man who's actually a seasoned lawyer himself. Mm. He saw the game himself and he's like, whoa, I got to learn more about this. Mm. So he sends Robert Haddle, who's the vice president of legislative matters, to investigate. And uh, he comes back with the news that Seinberg wanted to hear. Uh, Donkey Kong was clearly infringing on the rights to King Kong, both in character and scenario. And uh, further investigation revealed the licensing agreement that Nintendo had with Coleco. So like, okay, cool. Here's something we can do with that. Mm-hmm. How about we invite them to Los Angeles, Coleco, and let's talk to them. So the story goes in uh, 1982 on April 27th. Arnold Greenberg, the president of Coleco, was invited to Universal Studios to discuss a potential investment into the company, or at least ostensibly so. Mm-hmm. So he's like walking in there all happy, like, yeah, man, we're on the up and up. Unfortunately, he was greeted by Steinberg, 
who immediately told Greenberg that he was violating their trademark. He further followed up that if Donkey Kong was released for the upcoming ColecoVision as planned, they could expect to be sued. Coleco's a very small company at this point. Right. And Donkey Kong's very important to the ColecoVision because it's going to be released as a pack-in. Mm. So this is a real problem. It could literally sink the entire console. Right. This seems like a real shady way to go about serving this notice. Oh, luring somebody in unsuspectedly and then barraging them with legal threats? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Straight up lying to them about the premise for the visit seems like an interesting way to go about handling copyright infringements. Oh, you're going to love it when we talk a little bit more about good old Sid. (laughs) Because this ain't going to be the first time Sid's going to pull something like this. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, Sid... Sid is a good villain to this. Like, this is a good story that has, like, a clear, like, hero mm-hmm. and a clear villain. Right. And not a lot of history has those. But this story, oh, Mr. Seinberg, I love you. Yeah, that's that's just an unnecessarily evil way to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, yeah, like, for Greenberg, like, he was freaked out. He's like, oh, no, this is incredibly bad. Right. So, like, he sent him on his way to, like, think about it and... Eventually, they came to an agreement that was ratified on May 5th. Coleco would pay Universal royalties of about 3% of each game's sale price. I think it was estimated to come out to roughly about $6 million. Okay. And in exchange, they would not be sued. This is a clear distinction, by the way. Mm-hmm. They, were grant- they weren't granted a license. They right. were just promised not to sue. <laughs> Which, that's... Mm. That's one of those things is like, listen, we can come down on you at any time. Right. That's also a really tenuous contract. Mm -hmm. It's like, we will forego legal action. Yeah, we'll just ignore you for the moment. But at any point, we can come back. Yeah, Scheinberg acts like a mob boss throughout this. Yeah. It's like a real mob boss-like move. So before this was ratified, like after the meeting with uh, that Greenberg and Universal had... uh, Universal sent a telex, which is like a fax but stupider, uh-huh. to uh, Nintendo and Coleco with a warning. They had 48 hours to cease marketing Donkey Kong, to dispose of all inventory, and hand over all records of profits made from the game. So the ball was now in Nintendo's court, or more accurate, accurately, it was in Minoru Arakawa's, so since he was like the head of Nintendo of America and all. Right. So to help them make the decision, like what they should do, he turned to a very consequential man in Nintendo's history, Howard Lincoln. Mm. Lincoln's an interesting fellow. So he was Nintendo's general counsel at the time mm-hmm. and a member of the Seattle area law firm Ward Sachs. Uh, man's had a pretty interesting life. Uh, he's a former Eagle Scout, a uh, judge advocate general as well, mm. and for some reason was one of the boys who posed for the famous Norman Rockwell painting, The Scoutmaster. Huh. He's, he's a, yeah, he's apparently a second from the right, if I remember correctly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln never really wanted to represent Nintendo, and it only happened by circumstance. So the story goes is that he represented a couple of small-time sales representatives who literally sunk all their money into selling Nintendo arcade machines and had literally lost all their money. Oh. Yeah. So they were going to go, these two small-time sales reps were going to go, like, negotiate with Nintendo, like, presumably to get out of their deal, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they brought Lincoln along to meet Minoru Arakawa and presumably negotiate their exit. Right. So Arakawa was insistent their next game was going to be a smash hit, and Donkey Kong would take the world by storm. Uh, Lincoln was like, there's no way that's going to happen. I can understand that, yeah. Yeah. But, like, the way Lincoln handled himself during those negotiations really impressed um, Arakawa. Mm. And he actually wanted Lincoln to do the trademarking for the game. He's like, hey, can you arrange the trademark and just work with us and be our general counsel? And, and Lincoln was like, first off, he thought Donkey Kong sounded stupid. Right. Yeah. And two, he didn't want to represent a company that was clearly flailing. Mm-hmm. So he recommended seemingly every other lawyer he knew <laughs> instead. But Arakawa was insistent, and Lincoln eventually gave in. And after Donkey Kong was a huge success, and literally those two small-time distributors became millionaires overnight. Right he began to represent Nintendo almost exclusively. Hmm. Of course, I suspect Lincoln didn't expect his next task was to defend Nintendo against a potentially ruinous lawsuit from one of the biggest entertainment companies in North America, but 
hey, you know, you I know, guess that's your job now. Yeah. Uh, freaking video game legal counsel is never boring. Yeah, clearly not. <laughs> now, at first, he was inclined to settle. Lincoln figured that he could offer about 5 to $7 million or so and just make the problem go away. Mm. However, as Lincoln did some cursory research, he began to have second thoughts. For instance, he noticed that there was plenty of King Kong products on the market that were clearly not licensed. Right. He knew this because only one King Kong product, a costume of the giant ape, was licensed. Because, you know, they, they did their own trademark search and everything. They're like, hey, this seems a little weird. Right. So this made him think, do they actually own the trademark? <laughs> so on May 6th, Arakawa and Lincoln flew down to meet Sid Scheinberg, Robert Haddle, and Arnold Greenberg was also there as well. Almost immediately, the meeting became tense as it was clear that Haddle and Scheinberg played hardball. They re reiterated their stance that Nintendo and Coleco were violating their rights and they needed to settle. Right. Now, during this entire time, Greenberg was practically pleading with Lincoln and Arakawa to settle, mm -hmm. who, by the way, did not know that Greenberg had made his agreement with Universal and ratified it just a few days earlier. Which is a little shady, buddy. Right. What are we doing? Right. So Lincoln, however, was pretty unmoved by this. He, he pointed out two facts. The first was the aforementioned unlicensed use of King Kong mm -hmm. that were already out on the market. And two, their own trademark search not only found this fact, but the fact that the trademark itself was only 10 years old. And so Lincoln simply believed they didn't have a legitimate right, and he insisted they weren't going to buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Haddle responded that he had a chain of title that would prove their ownership of King Kong, and they would send it to Nintendo immediately. So Lincoln was like, okay, fine, cool. okay. we'll go back up to Redmond, which is what they did, and mm -hmm. they waited Universal's response. Here's the thing, the title never came. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. So they asked him a couple weeks later to send it again, and Universal simply responded that Nintendo needed to pay royalties or expect to be sued. So for Arakawa, this seemed to be a, who seemed to be like a bit nervous about this. He was mm -hmm. like, I, I'm not sure about this. For Lincoln, this just proved his suspicion that Universal didn't have a case. Right. He assured Arakawa that there was nothing to worry about, and if anything else, it proved that Nintendo had made it big. So on May 21st, Arakawa and Lincoln met with Scheinberg and Haddle again. They flew down to Los Angeles, met him in the office, and uh, Scheinberg was pretty in pretty good spirits about all this because he figured that if Nintendo's coming down here in person, they're about to cave. Mm -hmm. And he was feeling pretty generous. Like He insinuated that Universal and Nintendo could expect to do business in the future if they put this whole matter behind them, which really is obviously what they wanted. After all, right. Universal was looking to enter the video game industry. Mm-hmm. Like, this was kind of the play all along in many ways. Right. However, instead, what he got was a shock. They weren't settling. This was obviously a surprise. After all, why meet in person if you aren't going to settle? Mm -hmm. But as Lincoln would put it later, quote, Mr. Arakawa and I decided we would go down and simply tell him that we've come to tell you to your face. We, will, we would pay you if we thought we were liable. But we had done our homework and we were not prepared to pay anything because we had done nothing wrong or hadn't done anything wrong. Right. We just wanted to essentially look him in the face and tell him that. It seemed the honorable thing to do. As it turned out, maybe Haddle had led him to believe that we were coming down to reach some sort of monetary settlement with him. And it was really funny because it was not what he was expected and his reaction was shock, end quote. <laughs> so Scheinberg was furious. <laughs> They were infringing on his ownership, and he dared to come and essentially spit on their face. So he shouted at them, quote, You better start saving me money to pay your attorney's fees. I view litigation as a profit center, which is a hell of a quote. <laughs> it really is, and it sort of is like a crystallization of this whole situation, because mm -hmm. if what you were actually looking for was to start a business partnership, Freaking scaring them into paying you money is not the great way to build that foundation. Yeah, it, it turns out you don't you don't take your potential business partners behind the barn and beat them. Yeah, it's like it, there there were better ways to open these negotiations than demanding six million dollars. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's how Scheinberg operates. Once again, he operates like a mob boss, you know, yeah. carrot and stick sort of approach. Only he starts with the stick and then he maybe offers a carrot later under conditions. 
Yeah. So once again, it's rare in stories like this to have a clear moment where there's a clear villain. Right. So once again, thank you, Scheinberg. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you for being the worst. Mm-hmm. So on June 29th, 1982, Universal filed suit against Nintendo. So it's at this point that Scheinberg starts wilding out a bit. Mm-hmm. First, he threatens to sue anyone who ever licensed Donkey Kong for their own products unless they pay royalties. Like, he just starts going after everybody. Right. So most of them end up folding, except for two. Ralston Perina, who was making a Donkey Kong cereal, which looks like the most generic, like, Captain Crunch cereal you could ever see. Right. And it, it's, yeah, I have it written here, actually. A very generic cereal that had nothing on General Mills Pac-Man cereal, let me tell you. <laughs> which is true. Pac-Man cereal had had cool Pac-Man marshmallows, and eventually they had Miss Pac-Man marshmallows. Oh, dang. Yeah, right? Sounds rad. I want that cereal. Yeah. The other company that didn't fold was Milton Bradley, who put out a mm. Donkey Kong board game, uh, which, by the way, for the viewers at home, you should look up what the Donkey Kong board game artwork looks like, because it's like they took the arcade marquee artwork and then they went like full on realistic Mario with it. And it looks... <laughs> There's too much detail in Donkey Kong's feet is Oof. all I'm going to say. Mm. Mm. Well, so but, but yeah. yeah, I can imagine if anyone is like used to like navigating trademark waters it's freaking milton bradley yeah of all people right who I'm, I'm pretty sure they were confident they were in the clear with all this yeah oh yes yeah milton bradley a very long-standing board game company who's known for licensing yeah basically everything for a board game yeah 100 yeah. they they know what they're doing yeah and and they probably had the funds to fall back on if things went south Yep. So, yeah, I can imagine they were like, get out. Oh, it, it gets even better because, like, both of these companies were like, hey, you, you don't actually have the right to King Kong, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and Prina's response was even better. They, they offered just, like, $5,000 to license King Kong. They're like, whatever, here you go. How's yeah. that sound? Yeah, nice. Which, I mean, that's, I think it would come out to about 25000 today's money, which I'm not sure if that's, like, a legitimate amount for, like, a cereal. But I'm going to guess probably not. Probably, probably not. No, that, that sounds very much like, here's bus fare. Get out of our office. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, Scheinberg responded with something along the lines of it being the stupidest thing he ever heard and threw them out of the office. <laughs> so he seemed to agree with that. Yeah. Oh, so it's actually, here's, here's money so we can leave your office. Please, we're going to go now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, it's so good. That, that's really good. So my favorite of these, though, is Scheinberg's interactions with Tiger. Remember Tiger? Yeah, yeah, I remember Tiger. <laughs> yeah, the company making the knockoff Donkey Kong game using the King Kong license. Yeah. So shortly after the final meeting between uh, Scheinberg and Nintendo occurred, uh, Robert Haddle got in contact with Tiger and wanted to make changes to the game, specifically to not make it look like it was obviously just Donkey Kong. <laughs> All right. So he also told him the license wasn't going to be exclusive anymore, which uh, wasn't in the deal. They were kind of right. upset about that. Yeah. But uh, they, they felt like they had no choice, so they, they complied. Uh, the main character was changed from a carpenter to a fireman. Uh, the platforms were made straight instead of crooked. And the barrels were made into bombs. So they submitted this back to Universal for uh, approval, and they agreed to the changes. Until Scheinberg saw it and deemed it not good enough and revoked the license. Ah. Yeah. yeah. This obviously upset Tiger, who also questions if they owned the license to King Kong and began <laughs> to explore legal action. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's it, it's like they do everything possible to make it look as shady as possible. They right? really do. And the fact that every time someone's like, wait, do you own this license? They're like, get out, get out of our office. We're going to sue you. Yeah, they, they pull out their beaten stick and like, that ain't, that ain't the questions you need to be asking. <laughs> yeah, it's Universal. Universal has one game plan here and yeah. it, they cannot see that it's constantly backfiring on them. It's yeah. amazing. Mm. So in the meantime, while all this is happening, Nintendo begins to form their legal defense. Now, while Howard Lincoln is undoubtedly a good lawyer, this mm. particular type of trial case wasn't his area of expertise. Uh, luckily for him, a very good lawyer just happened to be available at the moment, John Kirby. Mm. John Kirby is also a very fascinating man. 
a lawyer known for his absolutely dogged defense of his clients, uh, specializing usually in corporate cases. This is perhaps not a surprise when you learn that in his younger days, he was a U.S. attorney for the Department of Justice's uh, Civil Rights Division during the ah. height of the Civil Rights Movement. Right. And while I wasn't able to find the secondary source of this, um, I, I took it from an interview that John Kirby gave. Apparently, he personally escorted African-American children into segregated schools. Mm. Yeah. Um, he left the GOJ after 1968 Democratic National Convention riots where he saw police beating protesters. Right. And was incredibly upset by it. Right. Saying that it was basically a police riot. Like, he, he apparently, like, ran in there and, like, tried to take down, like, badge numbers and, like, tried to restore order. And it was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. But then after that, he's like, I don't really believe in government anymore and went to right. private practice. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he seems like just, like, a good guy in general, really. Mm -hmm. And he entered private practice and he joined uh, Latham and Watkins. Uh, specialized once again in defending corporations and had a particularly successful track record representing companies such as PepsiCo and General Foods. Now, when Lincoln first met Kirby, he wasn't really impressed. Uh, he basically looked like a guy who worked all night and slept in a suit. <laughs> and noted that, quote, When I initially met him, I wasn't all that impressed. He was kind of disheveled looking and out of sorts, end quote. However, he clearly was the man for the job. Lincoln and Kirby immediately began to work on Nintendo's defense, flying to Kyoto to meet with Gunpei Yokoi and Shigeru Miyamoto and get their depositions. Mm -hmm. During this time, he also met with Hiroshi Yamauchi as well, a man who very famously hated lawyers. <laughs> Which makes it funny when you remember that he went to university to be right. a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, I've known a lot of lawyers who are very self-loathing, so this mm. tracks. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, although I feel like this is more about, I realized I could make more money if lawyers weren't around. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of um, hearsay and about like Nintendo's dealings with the Yakuza in the 50s and all yeah. that. So he also is just like, I just don't really like the legal system. Yeah. What? Prominent Japanese video game company hasn't had dealings with the Yakuza at some point. You know, who among us, right? Exactly. So he told him very bluntly, we must win. Mm. With that, they traveled back to the United States to do additional research and finalize their case. After Lincoln got back, Arakawa was so impressed with Lincoln that he just straight up offered him the position of senior vice president at Nintendo. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Once again, 1980s video game companies are yeah. just weird. Yes. You know nothing about, like, proper business or electronics or product management, but do you want to be vice president of the whole company? <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure, I guess. To be fair, this is not going to be the first time that Howard Lincoln is going to be put in charge of something that he should have no say in. Right. See Mariners, comma, uh, Seattle. Oh. Uh. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But, um, yeah, so given he was working exclusively for Mariners Nintendo... Mariners will freaking put anyone in charge. God, they really will. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, he, he was working exclusively for Nintendo at this point, so he just accepted the position. Yeah, sure. Which makes this a heck of a turnaround. Like, just two years ago, Lincoln thought Nintendo was a flaying company and tried right. to get anyone else to represent them. Right. And now he was the second most powerful man at their Nintendo... Um, at Nintendo of America. Right. Kind of nuts. Yeah. So the case went to trial in 1984 in the Southern District of New York, overseen by Judge Robert W. Sweet. Now, each side presented their case. Uh, Alex, what do you think Universal's case is going to be here? I don't know, because they haven't told anyone what it is so far. I guess it's, we made a movie? Wow. <laughs> you basically summed up their case. <laughs> Excellent. Now, there is a little bit more to it. They, they asserted they had a valid trademark because they bought it from Richard Cooper. Mm. And that was easy to confuse King Kong and Donkey Kong based upon their respective stories and scenarios. Sure. That was pretty much their argument. Now, Nintendo's argument was more robust. First, they had the game played in front of the court to demonstrate what it was about and to mm. show its distinction from King Kong. Specifically, they wanted to point out that Donkey Kong takes place on a building under construction and eight throws barrels, and there's, like, no Skull Island, biplanes, recognizable New York landmarks like you would expect from something involving King Kong. Mm -hmm. The second was the depositions from Gunpei Yokoi, and particularly Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, those were presented to the court, and Miyamoto had talked about his inspiration for Donkey Kong, and how he was originally named King Kong. 
Now, this seems like a point that Universal could have jumped on, but mm -hmm. it was further clarified that due to the general nature of the term, in Japan, King Kong was often used to describe any giant ape. Mm. However, the biggest bombshells were from the process of discovery. Uh, just to give a very simple uh, explanation of what discovery is for those of you who are not up on legal terms and whatnot. Uh, discovery is the process where both sides engage in mutual information gathering to help build their respective cases. They can request documents from one another or whatnot that are relevant, um, particularly important in civil cases. Mm -hmm. uh, the process of discovery produced two things for Nintendo that changed the character of the case. The first... John Kirby revealed that Universal had been actively trying to find a way into the video game business, which had been coupled with his comments to Lincoln and Arakawa about viewing litigation as a profit center, gave the case a more malicious tone. It's like, they're clearly mm -hmm. in this just for the money. The second, and this is a big one, is during that process, Nintendo discovered that Universal really didn't own the trademark. <laughs> <laughs> which seems important. Yeah... And this is why we talked about the King Kong movie all the way back in 1976. Right. <laughs> Where Universal sued RKO and the rights to everything except the movie version got thrown into the public domain. Right. Well, that's coming back to bite them now. Especially since it appears that Universal was well aware of this fact. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see how they could have been, given that Sid Scheinberg was the CEO of Universal in 1976 and was still the CEO of Universal in 1984. Right. He was kind of there. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, do you think judges like it when you make claims you knowingly have no right to make? No. No, they very much don't. Oh, they hate it. <laughs> they hate it a lot. You're you're basically A, lying to them, and B, wasting their week. Yes, and judges are a nor notoriously finicky sort. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, the case was basically dead at this moment. And after seven days, Judge Sweet ruled in favor of Nintendo. Now, I do want to go over the ramifications of this case and the conclusion, mm -hmm. uh, because it wouldn't be accurate to say that, it, that Universal simply lost because they didn't have an established trademark. Judge Sweet makes this clear in his decision, and I think it's very important we go over this because a lot of people go, oh, Universal didn't have the trademark. Ah, they lost. It's more complicated than that. Mm. The judgment was rendered on primarily two issues, and I, once again, think it's a good idea to explore these. First, the trademark. Universal obviously didn't have an all-encompassing trademark on King Kong. The court case back in 1976 established this. But what about buying the rights from Richard Cooper? Remember how you kind of brought that up right. earlier? Like, what do they actually own? Right. Even this was questionable. Uh. And the court ruled that what Cooper owned was essentially an abstract concept. You see, King Kong originated <laughs> with a 1932 novel. Yeah, uh -huh. right? And subsequently the 1933 movie. Right. One of these is in the public domain, the novel, and the other is owned by RKO, the movie. Mm -hmm. What Cooper had was the idea of King Kong, which cannot be sold because, once again, it's in the public domain. This is honestly good inadvertent hustling on Richard Cooper's part. Seriously, he, said, he sold something he can't sell. Yeah, he essentially sold Universal, say, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge back yeah. in 1976. <laughs> yeah. He made a lot of money off an idea. Yeah, Which it's you so can't good. own. Yeah. Now, admittedly, in that case, Universal did successfully profit 3% off of uh, the movie that ended up being released that they put no money in otherwise. So right. Fair. It still worked out for them, but it's still, it's still very funny. <laughs> Finally, even if all of the above was valid, Universal never bothered to enforce the trademark over the past 10 years, mm. and you kind of need to do that. Yeah. Like... Even if these King Kong products did apply for a license, though, there was a serious question, and this was brought up by Judge Sweet, of who to approach for that. Like, who do you approach for the license for King Kong? Right. Do you approach Universal? Do you approach RKO, if you want to use the image from the 1933 movie? Do you approach uh, Dino De Laurinaitis and his production company mm -hmm. for the 1976 movie, or all three? Right. Like, who do you approach? And you can't have that sort of confusion when it comes to a trademark. Mm. The second issue, honestly, may be the true nail in the coffin. And I think this is something that a lot of um, a lot of articles get kind of wrong about this case. Right. Donkey Kong simply does not resemble King Kong. Mm. It turns out there needs to be a very close resemblance in order for it to be a violation. Right. And that was written, Donkey Kong was, in the words of the court, farcical, childlike, and non-sexual. 
Donkey Kong creates a humorous impression by jumping up and down and strutting back and forth to tease Mario. This is in contrast to King Kong, who is, quote, a ferocious gorilla in, in the quest of a beautiful woman who goes on rampages, chases people, crushes them underfoot, or them to the ground, fights dinosaurs, giant snakes, airplanes, and helicopters, all culminating in his tragic and bloody death, end quote. They ruled that, at best, Donkey Kong is a parody of King Kong. As such, there's no possibility of confusion between the two. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. Right. Even if Universal was completely in the right about their trademark, they still would have lost this case. Right. Donkey Kong remains legally distinct. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And with that, the story was over. Except it wasn't. Yeah. Because there's always appeals. Oh, and right. And I... I can see why uh, a lot of articles don't talk about the appeals process because, you know, it's, it's decided, but the appeals process is kind of funny. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> Universal is still going to make an ass of themselves. Yeah, that, that tracks. Yep. So Universal felt they were still wronged, and they felt they could establish confusion between the two products. Because as mm -hmm. pointed out previously, there was no possibility of confusion between the two as well as part of the ruling. But they're like, no, 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 we can. Right. And oh boy, Alex, the way they went about this was dumb. Oh boy. So first, they commissioned a telephone survey. The mm. best way to gather information, let me tell you. Yeah. And called about 150 managers and owners of arcades and bowling alleys alike. You know, places that could have a Donkey Kong machine. Uh -huh. And in fact, they all what they all had in common was that they either already owned or leased a Donkey Kong machine. Okay. Now, this is a very important fact, so keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. They asked two questions. One... To the best of your knowledge, was the Donkey Kong game made with the approval or under the authority of the people who produced the King Kong movies? 18% of respondents said yes to this question. The follow-up, though, is really good. Okay. As far as you know, who makes Donkey Kong? No one answered Universal. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alex, do you think there was a problem with that first question, though? Um, like legally or practically? You know, practically, I think would be the better one. Uh, why the hell would they know that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alex, when, I know when I want to gather information, I always ask leading questions. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why when I, yeah, which is why when I worked in a hospital, I would always ask my questions. Do you think you have cancer? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's... It freaked them. Yeah, it freaked them out, but it definitely got a response that was 100% reliable. Yeah. <laughs> so he, the second question was by far my favorite, though, because it was meant to establish there was confusion with Universal's product, except no one names Universal at all. Right, yeah. But they went, no, this is proof. <laughs> it's uh -huh. like, no, it isn't. No, no, it's not. Oh, but they weren't done yet. They also presented a couple of quotes from magazines and books, such as from the October 1982 issue of Video Games Illustrated, which mm -hmm. reads, quote, Our Donkey Kong presentation continues as we look at other gorillas who have a fondness for women. Prominent among them is King Kong, who has much in common with the video villain. Once again, this does not say what Universal says it does. Yeah, no. They're like, this establishes confusion. It's like, no, they are clearly the, saying these two are different. Yeah, they, they said, clearly they, realize they're distinct. Yeah. <laughs> Comparison is not confusion. And it's especially not confusion when the example clearly points out the two are different. Yeah. So, on October 4th, 1984, the court affirmed the previous decision, declaring rather plainly that the two properties have nothing in common but a gorilla, a captive woman, a male rescuer, and a building scenario. It reaffirmed that King Kong had a generic connotation with giant apes and also admonished Universal for asking obviously leading questions in her survey and yeah. didn't even bother to give them the answer they were looking for. <laughs> They further said, and this is very important. Remember the part where I said they all own Donkey Kong machines? Mm -hmm. They also further said that the survey failed to establish potential confusion in a potential customer, which is the point. Right, right. You have to, you have to be in the process of losing profits. Right. So the, the people already had the machines. They're clearly not going to lose profit. And also, they, they weren't in the video game industry at the moment. So right. what, how are they going to lose money from this? Right. <laughs> Because they hadn't licensed any King Kong video games because every time someone tried, they threatened to sue the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, just, oh, mm. universal. Mm. So 
The final appeal happened on May 20th, 1985, which um, also coincided with Nintendo filing counterclaim to reclaim lost revenue and legal fees. Yeah, yeah, I'd expect so. Yeah, and this was not only in relation to the lawsuit Universal filed, but uh, remember that Tiger game? Yeah. Yeah. N- Nintendo found out about it, and uh, unlike Universal, they were successful in establishing that Tiger had copied Nintendo's idea. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And uh, you know how they found out they did? How's that? Uh, Universal told them to change their design, and they, dis- they found that out in Discovery. Yeah. So good job, Universal. You screwed over Tiger during this entire process. Universal's amazing in their ability to shoot themselves in the foot over and over oh again. Oh, boy. So Nintendo ultimately won, and while the judge, there was an additional judgment that reduced the amount of money awarded, they ultimately ended up with $1.8 million in damages. Mm. And here's where we can finally end the story. Now, as just a real quick, where they are they now? Obviously, mm-hmm. Nintendo is the largest video game company, dedicated video game company in the world. Obviously, Microsoft and Sony are bigger in just total multimedia companies, right. but dedicated video game company, Nintendo's the biggest. Uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi has eventually become the richest person in Japan. Okay, sure. Uh, that makes sense. Howard Lincoln would retire in 1999 and then take over as chairman for the Seattle Mariners, okay. where he was instrumental in getting Ichiro over to the United States, which is good. Mm-hmm. And then running the Mariners in the ground, which is bad. Yep, yep. All right, that sounds like baseball. Mm-hmm. John Kirby would lavishly thanked by Nintendo Mm -hmm. would be awarded a sailboat called the Donkey Kong and the exclusive (laughs) worldwide rights to name any sailboat Donkey Kong. (laughs) And this has never been confirmed. It's 100% a rumor, but it's basically treated as fact that the character of Kirby was named after John Kirby. Mm -hmm. Uh, The story goes that they apparently sent him a copy of it and apparently he was rather touched by it. Oh. Yeah. Once again, never proven. Right. Never confirmed it himself, but supposedly that's the story. Right. And what about Universal? Well, they did eventually enter the video game industry in two ways. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the good way first. The good way first is that they eventually established their own publishing company in the 90s. And they're actually responsible for giving both Naughty Dog and Insomniac their big breaks, um, releasing Crash Bandicoot and Spyro the Dragon, respectively. That's good. That's good. The bad is that before that, they bought a little toy company that started making video games called LJN. And perhaps one day we'll tell that story. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, But that's man. for another day. <laughs> oh, LJN is a special kind of awful. Oh, isn't it, though? It is oh. unique. They're so good. Oh. There's a very good uh, gaming historian episode, not only on the the lawsuit we talked about today, but also on LGN that I highly recommend looking up on YouTube. They're very, very good. Yeah. Also, yeah. to expound a little bit, uh, following three successful Crash and Spyro games from their respective developers, they then uh, yanked the rights from Sony, forcing them to change developers and produced just about like 10 years of terrible garbage. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually sold their entire gaming division to uh vivendi yeah yeah who proceeded to run things into the ground as vivendi does yeah would love to talk about vivendi one of these days because boy yeah oh boy there's there is ground to cover there oh there is but yeah alex how you feeling i feel good that was a good that was a feel-good story the happy ending. yeah yeah and, and for those of y'all out there who are like oh man this guy's like really talking of nintendo and whatnot and i am a I, I am a big Nintendo fan. Uh, don't worry. Literally a couple years later, they're going to start suing people for no reason. So yeah, don't worry. Yeah, that sounds about right, too. Yeah, that's they're, like they're gonna They're going to become a villain. Oh, it's yeah. Okay. This... Yeah, so Nintendo's done a lot of wrong. But this is a good story where it's like, oh, look, the little guy's getting one over on the big guy. And it's just fun story of people being real idiots and whatnot. And yeah. I can't wait to tell more stories about that in the future. But yeah, I guess the the lesson we need to take here is that uh, you should you know sue people over things that are in the public domain. Yeah, yeah, that's that seems like also, a good lesson that a lot of people probably aren't going to listen to. No, that or just you know don't be especially litigious. Yeah, or don't be a lo- don't be a lawyer it's, and it run a multimedia rough. company. Yeah, it seems rough. Uh, yeah. But yeah, 
I think that's going to go ahead and do it for today's episode. Unless you got anything else to share, Alex. Uh, I just I just wanted to share the parting thought that I really like that it wasn't pivotal in the case, but part of Nintendo's defense was, yeah, uh, the way Universal went around about all this trying to strong arm their way into the video game business by demanding money from their future partners, kind of dickish. And the judge went, yeah, that's kind of dickish, minus points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nice that it happened. It rarely, rarely happens that a person's bad behavior gets punished like that. But yeah. for once it was, and it's it's nice to have those stories every once in a while that, yeah, sometimes people do pay for that. Yeah. Yeah, but that's going to do it for us today. You know, once again, if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, uh, well, you'll probably have to wait for a bit while I release them. But we do have our, you know, regular podcast episodes where we talk about video game plot lines and have a tendency to go off the rails, which you can find at ftp.podbean.com or on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play if you look for Fallen Through Plot Holes. But with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off here today. Thank you so much for joining us on this good journey through video game history, and take care, everybody.